Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. I want to introduce John Kilduff. He is the founding partner of Again Capital, joins us to talk about energy markets. John, always a pleasure. Happy holidays. Does OPEC really control the price of oil? Happy holidays to you, Pim. Um, they, they certainly uh, you know, come together uh, with Russia to, to try to, to right the ship of state here this past year. Uh, I think what people shouldn't lose sight of the fact of, though, is that they got helped out by several exogenous events this year. Um, big pipeline outage out of Canada, the Keystone Pipeline was down for a while. The hurricanes this summer uh, did a lot of damage to, to global production. And for the past several weeks now, we've had a major oil pipeline outage in the North Sea that has kept about 400,000 barrels a day off the market and won't come back until uh, mid-next week at the earliest, it looks like. So uh, they've had a lot of help. Uh, but they certainly uh, you know, achieved a big objective here in terms of getting global supplies to tighten. So do they control it? No, but they are certainly not irrelevant either, I would say. Okay. So having said that, do you buy the idea that $75 a barrel by 2023 looks plausible? It seems like a little bit of a rich valuation uh, to me, uh, particularly when you see the, uh, the growth plans uh, for production that's out there uh, for Russia, for Iraq, uh, for Iran even, and even overlooked because they've had so many problems over the past several years, uh, is, is Brazil and Petrobras finally getting their act back together uh, with their offshore production, wanting to have nothing to do with this OPEC, non-OPEC agreement that's persisted for the past year. And, of course, the U.S. shale guys seem to still be in the early innings of what they can do. So there's still going to be a lot of supply you know, being put onto this market. And will that supply come in the form of crude or natural gas or both? It's certainly going to be both. And uh, interestingly, the low, super low cost that U.S. consumers are enjoying for natural gas is one thing that may, uh, may come to an end, at least to a degree, as we, as we start to export more and more liquefied natural gas. But there is going to be certainly a, a lot of crude oil. The other interesting thing, him is that, and the oil industry seems to do this. They all seem to get the same business plan idea from time to time. Everybody has the same PowerPoint. Uh, and right now, everybody is getting into the refined products business and ramping up that production. And that's one thing that's sort of quietly weighed on the markets increasingly as well. You have, you have China, who's a huge net exporter uh, of diesel fuel and gasoline. U.S. refiners have just been killing it this year in terms of upping their levels of exports. And the Saudis haven't, um, you know, not let this go unnoticed. They have also ramped up uh, their refined uh, production capacity. So, again, this is a market that has been, you know, reacting now for a couple of years to the super high price environment we had when oil was over 100 bucks a barrel. Um, and so we're still seeing the, the fruits of that being borne out here in terms of more supply of everything. So are refined product producers, are they still considered to be good investments or are they too expensive? They're a little rich, but the U.S. Uh, producers in particular, the U.S. refiners, the, the, the pure plays, but even ExxonMobil and, and, and Conoco uh, are really in, in, in the catbird seat still because the, the Saudis and some of these others that I've mentioned are still in the process of trying to catch up to them. So they have a, a, 
domestic crude oil that's much cheaper. The WTI has been upwards of 5 or $6 cheaper than Brent and other international markers, so they have that huge input advantage. Uh, so they, they are still, I think, a place – uh, where be sort of the uh, the bright spot of the energy sector. Now you mentioned natural gas, and we currently enjoy natural gas at around two dollars and sixty seven cents per million BTU. Uh, how long before you believe that price will increase enough to make people stand up and take notice? I think when you start to crunch the numbers, actually for the end of twenty eighteen, even you're going to see that the uh, the export volumes of liquefied natural gas via sh- liquefied natural gas obviously via ship but also we've been exporting increasing amounts of, of natural gas to Mexico via traditional pipeline uh, that's going to register with the inventories this year this winter for the first time in several years we do not have a record amount of gas uh, in storage as we start the winter uh, and we're and we're below last year's amounts by double digits so you're already seeing uh, some of that cushion get eaten away by the LNG export the trains that are already online, and you're going to see more of that. So this, this real surfeit of gas that we've enjoyed for the past several years uh, is likely to, to be going away, I believe, to, to, to kick off next winter. Okay, so if that's the case, then does that, in your mind, mean that we're going to see higher electric generating prices? Yes, because they're going to have a, a higher input cost. Uh, and I don't believe even with the higher natural gas prices, that'll be enough to bring sort of coal back into the picture uh, the way it once was. Um, and also, too, Pam, I think with the sort of shifting away a bit by the administration from uh, promoting uh, alternatives like solar and wind, um, although there's a, there's a lot of wind now in, in place already, uh, that that, too, is going to push the needle more towards or consumption more towards natural gas, which are going to get those prices up. So that's your feedstock going up. That's obviously going to cause electrical uh, prices to go up as well. So just as we've uh, gotten hooked on natural gas, just in time for uh, a price increase a year from now. At least that's uh, that's what you're betting on. All right. Thanks very much. Yeah, very much so, Pam. Again, it's just become a beloved fuel, and now this race to export it, is really making a difference here. It's going to be a, an interesting phenomenon to see how much. I wonder if we're going to regret promoting the export of this particular commodity here down the road. You're going to help us uh, understand the topic in the future. As always, John Kilduff, he is founding partner of Again Capital. Our focus on fixed income is brought to you by PIMCO for investors who demand more than the markets deliver. All investments contain risk and may lose value. Consult your investment professional before investing. Well, to uh, consult a professional about what the future holds, we have Brad McMillan. He is the chief investment officer for Commonwealth Financial Network. Uh, They have more than $110 billion under management uh, based in Waltham, Mass. And, of course, you can follow Brad McMillan on Twitter at Brad McMillan. McMillan CFA. All right, Brad McMillan CFA, the year of the rollover. That's what you're describing 2018 as. What does that mean, the year of the rollover? Well, Pim, I think we're we're ending the year on an unmistakable high note. You know, markets are close to records. We've seen growth being revised upwards. We've seen corporate earnings grow. And all of that's terrific. And we're carrying a lot of momentum into next year. The problem is everything is just about as good as it gets. So at some point during the year, probably in the second half, we're going to start to see a lot of things roll over. And by the end of the year, life won't look nearly as good. 
So what would be an example of something that would roll over? Well, let's look at job growth, for example. We've seen tremendous job growth. We've seen the unemployment rate down to levels we haven't seen since the dot-com boom. In fact, we're actually running out of people to employ. So when you look at that, you say to yourself, my God, we've, we've done very, very well. But what happens is we're actually starting to see hiring tick down. It's slow, but it's happening. And when we get hiring growth to a slow enough pace, that typically leads to a change of confidence. It's not that we're not doing well. It's we're running out of room to do better. Well, would that change of confidence uh, be changed once again if, while they don't necessarily hire the same number of people or continue hiring, what about if they just increased wages? That would be great. And in fact, when you see consumer confidence, again, right now we're at levels we last saw in the dot-com boom, but we still have some room to go. Okay? So, but if you look at consumer confidence and you say, okay, we're going to top out when people were just as confident as they were just before the dot-com boom burst, that means we got about a year to go. So, again, we've got some running room, but unless you think things are going to get much, much better than even they were in the dot-com boom, we're running out of room. Okay, so if we're running out of room and you say maybe a year to go, and let's say it takes you as an institutional investor or even as an individual investor, it takes you maybe six months to really change your portfolio. Do you recommend that people start taking profits in 2018? I don't think so. I think what we're going to see is we're going to see the market continue to rise for the first half. You know, we still have a lot of good things going on, and confidence really has room to run. But then we're going to have to start thinking in the back half. You might want to say, okay, maybe we want to get a little bit more defensive. So, yeah, in 2018, but not right now, late what, 2018. What does defensive look like to Brad McMillan? I think cash is underrated as an asset class. I think it gives you optionality. It gives you a sleep-at-night factor. I think moving back towards areas where you're not going to need growth. I think value stocks are going to – they're starting to come back. They've really underperformed relative to growth, but I think their day is coming again. I think those two components help a lot. Earlier in the program, uh, we were speaking uh, with uh, Srinivas Tirur Vandantai of the Jerome Levy Forecasting Center, and he outlined – this had to do really with Bitcoin, but I want to apply it here, which is that because we're in a yield-starved environment, people have been chasing capital gains in order to make up for that. Do you agree? I think there's a lot of truth to that. I think the fear of missing out, there is no alternative to the stock market. That's true. If interest rates start to rise again, though, that becomes no longer true. And when that trade reverses, that could be ugly. You mean there's an actual possibility that people will buy CDs for income once again? Well, when you look at what you're getting paid for the risk you're taking in the market, yeah, CDs at 2%, if and when we get there, are going to look like a fairly compelling alternative. What effect do you believe that the tax overhaul plan will have on your thesis? Not much. What we're going to do is we're going to have a one-shot deal. We are going to see a tremendous amount of cash brought back, and that, of course, will cheer the markets up. We're going to see the market repriced to reflect lower tax rates, but it doesn't meaningfully affect overall growth rates. So once we get that one adjustment, we're going to be back to where we were. Will the Federal Reserve shrug off that one-time adjustment, or will they continue to raise interest rates? 
I think they're going to keep raising interest rates, and this will probably be a part of it, but the bigger part of it will be the piece that you mentioned earlier, once we start to see wage growth increase. Again, from the Fed's point of view, inflation has been too low, and they've been trying to drive it up. Well, be careful what you wish for. I think 2018 is the year we start to see inflation cook, and between that and the fact that the incoming Fed, the, the voting board, is actually going to be considerably more hawkish, I think you got a price, you got a recipe for more rate increases. Does that mean a stronger U.S. dollar? It certainly could. It certainly could. I think the U.S. dollar is probably at relatively high levels, but it still has more room to appreciate given the pullback over the past several months. And that means what? That oil prices or commodity prices in general will remain muted, at least for those that actually have to pay for them by earning dollars. Well, I think from a, from a market perspective, oil is an interesting case because what you're actually seeing is you're seeing the re-oligopolization of the market. In other words, there's no long, the market is no longer a market as such. Prices are increasingly being set by large actors, by OPEC, by large companies that are operating in the U.S. It's no longer every man for himself. This is much more of a managed market. And to that extent, I think we're going to see prices keep tripping up. But the U.S. dollar will help, yes. All right. So if prices keep tripping up, would that mean an investment in the energy sector, or are you staying away? I, I like the energy sector. I've liked it for a while, although I was early on that one. When you look at where where energy companies are priced relative to oil prices, unless you're expecting them to revert back to you know the very low levels we've seen, it makes no sense. There's some running room there. I think that's a growth sector going forward. All right. And what about you mentioned you know this idea that growth versus value? Uh, are there any industry groups in value or in growth that you believe have missed out and deserve a second look? Well, I th- this is this is hardly a missed out trade, but when you look at financials, a lot of the narrative out there has been around the interest rate curve, and that's valid. But I think the bigger story here, the one that is being missed, is the deregulatory. Okay, financials as a group have been really crippled by regulation ever since the crisis. They simply have not been able to operate in the way that they did pre-crisis, and by and large, that's been a good thing. But with deregulation, you're going to see these companies unshackled, and a lot of business opportunities they've had to pass on will now be doable. I think deregulation is the big story for financials, and I think you'll hear about that more and more. Well, we look forward to hearing about it from you as well. Brad McMillan, Chief Investment Officer, Commonwealth Financial Network, managing more than $110 billion from Waltham, Mass. This is Bloomberg. Pim Fox. And joining me now is Shira Ovide, our Bloomberg Gadfly columnist covering all things technology. Apple shares down 2.5%. And we've got a little bit of confusion in the market. On the one hand, we have an analyst from Rosenblatt saying that press reports of order cuts of iPhone 10 units by Apple could be confusing, maybe referring to previously mentioned iPhone 8 and 8 Plus production cuts. Oops, maybe not the 10. Shira, can you make sense out of this for us? I'll try the best I can. But look, the fact is this happens every year around this time uh, for Apple that there's going to be all kinds of reports, mostly from Asia, where Apple has all of its suppliers and the companies that assemble the iPhones. And there there tends to be these sort of conflicting push-pull reports about 
cuts in production or increases in production or Apple's making fewer of the uh, new iPhones than they expected or more. It's a lot of noise and those kind of reports out of the supply chain are wrong, let's say, 50% of the time. So I I wouldn't put too um, too much faith in any of them. But look, the fact remains that the closest, the most important question for the most valuable public company in the world, which is Apple, is what is demand like for the newest version of the iPhone, the iPhone 10? And we still don't really know the answer to that question. And it's not an exaggeration to say that the market value of Apple, the $900 billion plus market value of Apple, is highly dependent on the answer to that question. Clearly. But anecdotally, I'm wondering whether you could share with us, you know anybody that bought the iPhone 10? Uh, actually, in my in my own household, my father just replaced his aging, I think, five year old iPhone that was literally held together with a rubber band. He uh, replaced it this week with an iPhone 10. So there's one for Apple, at least. Okay. Anecdotally. All right. The, the reason the reason I ask it is because when someone sees the new, the iPhone 10, and they see the OLED screen. And they see some of the features that are being offered and the speed, because I think it's only being offered in a 64 and a 256 gig format, uh, which allows you to drive a Mac truck through the middle. But uh, that that would create even greater demand because people themselves go, oh, I like the way that looks. I've got to get my hands on one of those. It's entirely possible. And and you're right. There is this kind of viral effect when people see new phones. Um, And we'll see what happens you know, over the holiday, the important holiday shopping season. Look, the the big uh, the big doubt in my mind is if you look globally at trends in smartphones, they're getting the improvements are becoming more marginal, and part of it is our expectations that we got used to for several years just seeing. Uh, each new smartphone generation that came out is so much better than the last one. And it's still sort of true, but I think our expectations have gotten so high that it no longer feels like this dramatically cool moment when a brand new iPhone comes out. And you can see it in the numbers that in many countries in the world, including the United States, people are holding on to their existing phones for longer and longer. Part of that, of course, is Price. I was going to say because they're more expensive and, and the, the carriers are not absolutely. subsidizing the way yes, they used to. Yes, that is definitely true. But part of it is also just this kind of feeling of incrementalism and the phone that I have today is good enough, uh, particularly because a lot of the things we do on our phones are not that dependent on having a, the, the latest and greatest model, right? If I'm using Facebook or Instagram or email or things like that, do I really need to do it on you know, the latest processor or the latest OLED screen. Is, is it because also that, that the learning curve gets steeper every time you get a new phone? Because the way, you know, there's not going to be, there's no home button, for example, on the new Apple phone. There is no way to plug in an audio uh, jack into uh, many of the new smartphones. I, I'm sure on the margins that those things matter, right? It, it gets kind of harder and harder to transfer our lives from an old phone to the new phone. And you're right, particularly with the iPhone 10, there is kind of a learning curve because, as you said, uh, people, there's no home button. People kind of have to learn these new modes of navigating. Um, your hands navigating are fi- your hands are physically going to have to learn Correct. how to swipe and move in a different way. Uh, y- yes, that is all true. And also, there's this kind of facial recognition technology to unlock the phone. And and yeah, there, those might be barriers for some people. But look, I, you know, there's also a good amount of enthusiasm for the iPhone 10. But my, again, my question broadly is: Is it enough to counter this sort of tendency for 
for people to feel like the existing phone they have is good enough. Is it good enough to watch uh, every bit of uh, television on a small screen now as opposed to a big screen? I mean, do people really watch on a big screen? Maybe sports, but... Uh, any kind of entertainment. Look, I, I think the trends are, are clear that there was a thinking for a long time that people won't do X on their smartphones, right? The, there was a feeling for a long time people wouldn't really shop on their phones. I think we've killed that notion that people aren't going to shop on their phones. <laughs> I think Amazon has put that Amazon to Amazon has yes. definitely put that as to As well rest. as any app you buy or anything you would buy, let's Absolutely say, from right. iTunes. If you look at things like YouTube, the majority of viewing on YouTube now is on smartphones. So I, I think the tendency, particularly among young people who are the future, let's face it, uh, is to do more and more on their phones, including watching television and movies and other things that people a few years ago didn't think that people would want to do on their smartphones. I think the answer is people are going to want to do everything on the small screen. I'm still trying to figure out what to do with Pinterest on the small screen, because that seems to absorb a lot of attention mm. as well. Yeah. Your Pinterest household? Yes. Okay. Mm. I still don't know how it works. Maybe you'll show me. Thank you very much. Shira Oviday is our Bloomberg Gadfly columnist covering technology. Is it really the best holiday season since before the recession? Well, let's ask an expert. We've got Craig Johnson. He is the president of Customer Growth Partners. He joins us from New Canaan, Connecticut. Uh, Craig, thank you very much for being uh, with us today. Uh, so I use this quote to bring us into this topic uh, that a business owner said to you that this is literally the best season since before the recession. Is it? Well, Pam, good to be with you. Happy Boxing Day. And yes, it is. But by our metrics, um, all the numbers are pointing that way. So sales through Christmas Eve um, uh, were, were up about 5.7% over last year for the same period. Um, and that, that came to a total of $598 billion. And then this Christmas week, Christmas to New Year's week, um, which we call retail second season, we'll add another... $73 billion to which that makes a grand total of $671 billion for the season ended ending on the 31st. And that is about 5, 5.6, 5.7% above uh, uh, last year. And last but not least, that is the best since 2005, 6.1%. To what do you attribute this, uh, this performance? Um, three major factors. First and most important is rising disposable uh, income, real personal income. That has been basically flatlining for most of the last decade. It began turning up about a year and a half ago, and this year uh, real income growth has been, has been fairly decent. Uh, second factor is uh, the wealth effect, primarily from rising uh, uh, stock markets everybody's seen over the last year. And then the third effect is, 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 is more of a, a little bit different angle. Um, the single biggest deterrent to spending, uh, if people uh, uh, have money, is fear of job loss. Um, and right now, job losses, as in the unemployment, uh, uh, new unemployment claims, are at a 44-year low since the 1970s. And so people feel much more secure in their jobs, and they're, so they're willing to spend. Will this continue? Uh, you can only, I mean, for so long, can you just believe that you're not going to lose your job and therefore you will always make enough money to cover your bills? Is that really something that can be counted on? Well, I, nothing can be 100% counted on for sure, but the, the one thing we do know in terms of whether this strong, you know, this, this has really been a crackerjack uh, Christmas uh, for, for retailers and consumers. 
Pam, and we think that it, this will continue because all the ingredients are in, are in place. One, we have a very broad-based uh, 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 retail uh, uh, season this year. All merchandise categories, it's across all formats, whether it's discount, big box, specialty, department store, everybody's doing better or at least less worse. And then last but not least, there is, there's strength at all income quintiles. All five income quintiles are spending more than they did last year. That, that, well, that shows that there's a broad-based thing, and this is even before the tax cuts. So with the new Trump tax cut bill, that should be an added, you know, an, an added booster uh, that should sustain through 2018 and maybe, uh, maybe beyond. So why all of the negativity surrounding the retail uh, investment? world. In other words, investing in Nordstrom, investing in Macy's, Kohl's, and so on. Why is there such negativity around investing in retail outlets? Well, the examples you all used, you just used, um, Kohl's, Nordstrom, Macy's, they're all department stores. And the department store sector is one of the weaker sectors. It's not, you know, anything home-related does very well, home improvement, home furnishings. But the department store sector is still lagging. But even, even the department store sector... Uh, uh, is less worse than it used to be. In some places, are actually, we believe, breaking into the positive. You mentioned uh, Nordstrom, for instance, um, uh, uh, which will have positive comps for uh, for the season. So we're, we we don't we don't do market psychology. That's above my pay grade. We just to see what what consumers are actually doing in the stores, what they're spending, what they're spending it on. And right now, this is a very very strong holiday season. Are there any particular areas of the retail industry that are strong? That, for example, the electronics business. Well, the consumer electronics has been has been certainly been strong. There's a, there's a lot of price compression there on the on the TV side, so that pulls down the numbers a little bit. But some of the hottest products that are out there, whether it's the Nintendo Switch, whether the Apple iPhone X, or iPhone 10, or the Apple uh, 8 Plus, or the Apple Series 3 Watch, where they finally got it right, those are all very strong, and those are all, of course, selling at, at full price. And then the other thing that's been very strong is anything home-related. I mentioned home improvement, mentioned home furnishings, um, and even in the digital world, some of the hottest products were the Amazon Echo, the Echo Dot, Google Home, the Google Home Mini, all have been very, very strong sellers this year. I think, for example, of a company like Wayfair, uh, based in Boston, is that a, a kind of a poster child for what does really well, retailing household goods online? Absolutely, Wayfair has been one of the one of the standouts over the last year. You know, well before Christmas, uh, and it, and it is having, we believe, a very strong season. As are all, all, almost all the 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 major home players. Uh, you know, whether it's William Sonoma, you know, whether it's RH Restoration Hardware. Um, the Bed Bath Beyond is a little is one of the ones that's been right. more hurt by the migration to places like uh, Wayfair. Uh, but in, if you're in home and if you're online, you're probably going to do pretty well. Well done. Thanks for uh, alerting us to all of this. Uh, Craig Johnson is the president of Customer Growth Partners. They're based in New Canaan, Connecticut. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.